do appreciate everybody's presence today. It's good to be here, to be able to worship together, sing songs together like we've done, pray together, uh, observe the Lord's Supper, commune with the Lord and with each other in, in that way, and uh, just a great opportunity to be here tonight. Jerry and I have been out of town. We got back Friday afternoon. Uh, Brother Dustin Merkel uh, preached in this place last week. We were actually at Embry Hills, and he was over here. And uh, uh, he's uh, going to be moving to, to be with us uh, on a permanent basis here in the near future. Many of you know that he ran into a snag with his house and getting all that worked out and hasn't been able to close on his house yet. But my understanding is significant progress has been made to clear up that, that snag, that error that was made. And so uh, things are moving along very well now, I think. And so that's, that's good. Uh, when you're away like we've been, away for a week or so, when you get back, it seems like a whole lot longer. Uh, but uh, it's only a week, and uh, we're back, and we're glad to be back. Jerry Bailey told me what I've thought many times. It's good to be away, but it's good to be back home, too. So we're glad to be here and to be with everybody here. Might mention, as I'm thinking about it, there's a concert tonight at the amphitheater, weather permitting. And so just take a look on your phone. Uh, on your GPS before you come and account for the traffic that might be backed up and so forth. And so just uh, kind of make that observation while it's on my mind. Let's turn to the Gospel of John this, this morning, the Gospel of John. We're going to look at a passage toward the end of the Gospel of John. You might remember that after Jesus is arrested and taken into custody, he goes through two trials. There's a Jewish trial and then there's a Roman trial. And he goes to the Jewish trial first, of course. Uh, that, that trial involves the Sanhedrin, the council, and also the high priest, including Annas and Caiaphas. And so he goes to them first, and then he's delivered over to the, to the council where he's tried. We use that in quotation marks. It's all been uh, determined beforehand what's going to be said and what's going to be the decision is going to be. And so it's sort of a mock trial. But Jesus goes through the, the procedure anyway, and he's uh, convicted of committing blasphemy, making himself God, or making himself equal with God. That's a capital offense to the Jews. It's uh, deserving of death. But at that particular time, the Jews don't have the authority to execute people. They are under the, uh, uh, the governance of the Roman Empire, and so they have to appeal to the Romans to have permission to execute those who have committed offenses worthy of death. And so they take Jesus to Pilate, who is the Roman governor at the time. Pilate really doesn't want to get involved in the, the issue, and he makes a number of attempts to, to, release, to release Jesus. All of them, of course, fail. At the very beginning, Pilate says to them, in John 18, beginning in verse 28, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. This is this is a matter of your law. This, this has to do with you and Judaism. It has, doesn't have to do with me and, and the Roman law. And so, and so you deal with him. Again, Pilate doesn't want to get involved. They insist. This man has committed a capital offense. He's worthy of death. We have to have permission from you to execute him. And so Pilate takes Jesus in and interrogates him. He finds nothing wrong with him. And that's that conversation takes place between verses 33 and 40 or so of John 18. 
But he brings Jesus out and he says, I find no guilt in him. I don't find anything wrong with him. Well, the Jews continue to insist, crucify him, crucify him. And so he has, Pilate has Jesus beaten. And again, in John chapter 19, he finds nothing wrong with him. There is no crime in him. You see that in verse, in verse 4. And then again, as the Jews continue to insist that he be dealt with, that Jesus be crucified, Pilate again makes the statement that there is no crime in him. He doesn't find any fault in him. Eventually, because of the pressure of the Jews, Pilate releases Jesus, even though Pilate knows he's innocent, Pilate releases Jesus to the Jews. They take him to be crucified. I want to focus on this passage in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33 and going down through uh, several verses, down through about verse 38 or so. This sort of takes place in the middle of this process. Jesus has gone through the Jewish trial. He's been convicted of blasphemy. He's been sentenced to death. Now he's handed over to Pilate. Pilate doesn't really want to get involved, and so he tries to, to pass him off. The Jews insist. And so in the middle of all that, Pilate takes Jesus in, brings him in, and he begins to question him. He begins to interrogate him to see what Jesus has done. And so that's the passage that I want to look at this morning. Beginning in verse 33, going through verse 38. Let's read it together. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Well, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Uh, your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. Well, what have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, Oh, so you are a king. And Jesus says, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? He, and when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. I focus especially on this central part here where Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus responds by referring to his kingdom and the things that are said in connection with all of that. Luke makes it clear to us in Luke chapter 23 and verse 1 that one of the things that the Jews said about Jesus and bringing him to Pilate was, he made himself a rival to Caesar. He's making himself a king. And of course, that's a serious, that's a serious offense, isn't it? Anybody in the Roman Empire that was a rival to Caesar or wanted to raise themselves up and make themselves a king and gain a following that would support them and fight for them, that was serious business to the Romans and they were going to deal with it. The Jews knew that, and so they accused Jesus of being a rival to Caesar, making himself king. And so Pilate has to take Jesus into the praetorium and begins to question him about this. He says to them, are you the king of the Jews? You can see that in verse 33. They've accused you of making yourself to be a king. Are you the king? Are you a king, the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well... Are you saying this on your own initiative? Are you really interested in this? Do you have an interest in this issue? Or did you hear, just hear 
Uh, are you just repeating what other people have told you? Just going through the procedure and the, the motions of trying to deal with me. And of course, Pilate's response to all that indicates that he's really not that interested in Jesus and Jesus' claims and who Jesus is. Well, I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Jew. Your own people, they've delivered you. Well, what have you done? And so again, you can see Pilate really has no interest in learning whether Jesus is the king of the Jews or not, or in what sense he's the king of the Jews. And so Jesus says, well, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, that implies that he is a king, doesn't it? And so if Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, well, Pilate's going to pick up on that idea. My kingdom, well, he must say that he's a king. Oh, so you're a king then, he says. Well, you've answered correctly that I'm a king. I've come into this world. That's why I'm here, to testify concerning the truth. Now, if you were of the truth, you'd listen to me. You'd investigate that. If you had an interest in what was true, you would investigate that further, and you would come to know that I am a king. Pilate's not interested in that. Oh, what is truth? Kind of passes all that off with that, uh, that question. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Is Jesus a king? And what is the nature of his kingdom? Is Jesus a king? That was the question that Pilate asked him. Is Jesus the king? And of course, the answer to that is yes. Jesus says, New American Standard Bible, Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. Yes, Jesus is the king. The Old Testament is full of information about a coming king. Go all the way back into Genesis, all the way back to Genesis chapter 17 and verse 6. God is dealing with Abraham on this occasion. He's called Abraham to leave his family and go to the land of Canaan. And remember, God deals with him, speaks to him on several occasions. On this occasion, John 17 and verse 16, he tells them that kings of peoples will come from Sarah, your wife. Kings are going to come from Abraham and Sarah. So all the way back, Genesis chapter 17, we're seeing that God's plan is to bring a king from the descendants of Abraham. A kings of peoples will come from you and your wife. In Genesis chapter 49, we find Jacob blessing his sons. And when he begins to bless Judah, he tells him that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And so the, the scepter is that rod that a king uses. It's a, it's a symbol of his authority and his power. And so the scepter, the rule, the power, the dominion is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And so another indication that God's plan is to bring a king into the world through the seed of Abraham and the nation of Israel. Well, if you go over to the book of Numbers, Genesis 17, then you've got Genesis 49. Now the book of Numbers, and this statement takes place within the story of Balaam and Balak. You remember that talking donkey of Balak and, and all of that? Well, here's the statement in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 that says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob a scepter shall rise from Israel. And so I can see into the distant future, what do I see? I see a scepter, this ruling staff, indication of royal power and dominion, is coming, is coming from Israel, is coming from Jacob. 
2 Samuel 7, studied this not long ago in our auditorium class. 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that one of his descendants, one of his offspring, will sit on his throne forever. He will rule and his kingdom will have no end. And so again, here's this promise, this uh, prediction of this coming king, the seed of David. So we see that he's coming from Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, now from a descendant of David. He's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to rule forever. 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 16. The prophets, of course, pick up on this and they talk about the coming king and his kingdom, the glorious kingdom that he will establish and that he'll rule over. I think about Jeremiah chapter 33, for example. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. He execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In verse 17, For thus the Lord says, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And so the prophets pick up on the idea that a king is coming, a descendant of David, they even describe him in those terms, and he's going to establish his throne and he's going to rule. He's going to administer and exercise truth and justice. Read about the coming kingdom in passages like Isaiah the second chapter, Isaiah the eleventh chapter, Daniel the second chapter as well. In fact, Daniel the second chapter tells us the time in which the king will come and establish his kingdom. So look at Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. In the days of those kings, if you go through the whole chapter, you'll see that that's a reference to the Roman Empire. In the days of the Roman Empire, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these previous kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And so the king is coming. The Old Testament, you can see, we've just touched on a few passages. The Old Testament is full of references to the coming king and the establishment of his kingdom. From the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians until the advent of Christ, Israel was without a king. And so the king of Judah is deposed, and the king, Israel doesn't have a king from that point on until Christ comes. There is no king Israel. The scriptures predicted the kingdom of God was coming. The people of Israel could read the prophecies and understand them, and so they're in a state of expectation in the days of Christ. John the Baptist comes onto the scene and he's preaching. They even asked John, are you the king? Are you the one who's coming? Are you the one we've been looking for? And of course, John denies that he is, but he acknowledges that there is one coming after him. There's one coming after him who is greater than he. He says even, in fact, I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. He will be the king. He will be the Messiah. And of course, Jesus fulfills these prophecies. He's a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Judah, a descendant of David. Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew establishes that very, very clearly. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Judah, a descendant of David. In fact, the genealogy begins, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies going all the way back to Abraham. He's addressed as king. In Matthew chapter 2, in verse 2, the wise men come and they ask, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and come to worship him. They recognize that this one is the king of the Jews. In John chapter 1, in verse 49, when Jesus meets with Nathanael and he interacts with Nathanael uh, a little bit, he talks about how he saw Nathanael under the fig tree and so forth. Remember what Nathanael says about Jesus? He recognizes him, verse 49, as the king of Israel. His teaching, his miracles bear witness to his being king. He's addressed as king by the crowds in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, the crowds acknowledge him as king. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's coat, which is itself a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. But it's his resurrection that ultimately proves that he is the king. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, this first gospel sermon, uh, sort of in fulfillment of the Great Commission. And during the course of all that, Paul, uh, Peter establishes the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God, which is the place of authority, where God exercises his rule through his king, who of course is Jesus. Verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He's poured forth this which you both see and hear. And so you see all that, and see how He puts all that together? Quoting 2 Samuel 7, God promised one of David's descendants would sit on His throne. In view of this, He raised Jesus from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God. And he is now both Lord and Christ. You see that in verse 36. Oh, so you're a king then. <laughs> what was, was the statement of Pilate? Oh, you're a king. You've, got, you talk, you refer, you've referred to a kingdom. You must be a king. Yes, you've answered correctly. I am a king. Oh, the answer to that question is yes. Jesus is the king. We're going to talk a little bit then about the nature of his kingdom. Now, how is it that after Pilate interrogates Jesus, knowing that if this man is claiming to be a king and he's raising an army together, raising a force together, getting together a following, and he's going to attempt to overthrow the Roman oversight of, of, of Judah, that's going to be a problem for Pilate. You know? He's going to have to deal with that. But after interrogating Jesus... Pilate says, I don't find anything he's done wrong. He is, he's not a threat. He's not a threat to me. Now, now, now why is that? How, how, can he, how, how does he arrive at that conclusion? Well, it's because Jesus says, now my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I'm a king, 
But I'm not a threat to you. You see, my kingdom is not of this world. Talk a little bit about the nature of Christ's kingdom. The kingdom, of, the kingdom of God is a major subject of Jesus' teaching. It's mentioned over 80 times in the Gospels. Jesus talks about the kingdom or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Matthew summarizes Jesus' teaching in Matthew 4, verse 17. Repent, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that's sort of a summary of Jesus' teaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The long-awaited kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, it's, it's, it's just about here. And the people were to prepare to be a part of that kingdom by repenting. A spiritual activity, repenting. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He describes the kind of people that would be in his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5, and if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard some of this in recent weeks. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitude, uh, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle. They shall inherit the earth. And right on down into the last beatitude, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to occupy the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to be citizens within it? The poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Certainly not the wealthy or powerful. An idea that itself suggests the kingdom of God is different in nature than the kingdoms of this world. You remember Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19 in commenting on his interaction with the rich young ruler, how difficult it is for the, for the wealthy, the rich, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember how the, the apostles are surprised at that? Well, they, well then who can, who can enter? It's not for those who are rich and powerful and influential it's for those who are poor in spirit, who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You see, it's not of this world. It's not like kingdoms of this world. And those who strive to attain power and significance and importance through material things or through worldly advantage, they are not participants in the kingdom of God. See, it's, it's just different in nature. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And they, of course, enter into conversation Jesus tells him, you must be born again. The one who is not born again cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. He goes on to explain this is a spiritual birth that he's talking about. Not a, not a physical birth, a spiritual rebirth. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 17 and verse 21, the kingdom is not here or there. The kingdom is within you. Verse 20, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them saying, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. The kingdom of God is in your midst or within you. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. We have to repent to get into the kingdom. We have to be born again, born of the Spirit to participate in the kingdom. That might come as a surprise to some, like it did the apostles in Matthew 19, but that's the nature of the kingdom. Other New Testament writers outside the gospel speak of the kingdom of God as a present reality. 
Jesus is the king. He's reigning now. He's sitting at God's right hand, administering God's rule in the earth as He rules over the hearts of men and women, wherever they might be, whatever station in life they might fill. And the other New Testament writers speak of that as well. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Notice the past tense verbs. He rescued us, past tense, He's already rescued us, and He's transferred us, that's already been done, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. As we submit ourselves to the rule and the dominion and the authority of Christ as King, we become citizens in the kingdom of God. That's done when we submit ourselves to Christ and become His disciples. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. In the book of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, John says, I am your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. I'm a partaker with you in the kingdom. We all submit, John is saying, both you and I, we have submitted to the rule of God in Christ, and we are partakers in the kingdom. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And so we are receiving, we are in the process of receiving a kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a geographical state. It's not of this world. It's not of the same nature as the kingdoms of this world. It's not ruled by an earthly king or president or prime minister of this world. It doesn't accomplish its purposes through political processes. Its leader is not elected or appointed by men. It's not defended by military methods. It's just not of this, it's just not of the same nature as this world. Well, sometimes people get confused about the kingdom of God, and they've uh, made some mistakes in connection with that. I just want to note some of those quickly. Some believe that Jesus is going to return to the earth and establish a, a kingdom on this earth that will last for a thousand years. It'll be a, uh, it will be a kingdom on this earth. In, in, a, in a very real sense, a kingdom of this earth ruled by a human being, Jesus, from a city, Jerusalem, and a physical throne, the throne of David. It's part of an elaborate system of interpretation of Scripture. It affects every part of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It includes such ideas as the rapture of the church, the tribulation, the appearance of the Antichrist, Armageddon, the establishment of the millennial kingdom. This fundamental mistake is that it takes literally Biblical material that should be taken figuratively or spiritually. And so it understands John literally when in Revelation chapter 20, he says that Jesus will reign for a thousand years. Even though the numbers in Revelation are highly symbolic and highly figurative. Numbers like a thousand and ten and seven and two and 144,000 all have symbolic significance not to be taken literally. Incidentally, that passage, Revelation 2, verses 4 through 6, says nothing about Jesus reigning on the earth or from Jerusalem. 
And so according to this interpretation, the millennial kingdom of God will very much have a physical, this worldly nature. It's a worldly theocracy, we might say. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. There have been times when people suggest that we kind of bring in, usher in, and build God's kingdom on earth as we eliminate all the problems of the world, sort of usher in a golden age of social well-being. And so we establish the kingdom of God as we eliminate poverty and prejudice and injustice and hatred and corruption. And we promote love and peace and justice and generosity and kindness and things like that. As we implement programs that achieve these things, the kingdom of God will become a reality on earth. Well, it's true that disciples of Jesus will do their best to be kind and generous and just and peaceful and loving. These qualities will manifest themselves in specific ways in our lives, and these are noble ambitions. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So even if we were to create a perfect society, if we were to create some kind of utopian society on this earth, where there's no poverty and no injustice and no hatred and only love and peace and well-being, that still would not accomplish what Jesus came to set up in the kingdom, in His kingdom, because, see, His kingdom is not of this world. The gospel brings about changes in this world as it changes the hearts of people, but its primary objective is to bring us into fellowship with God and to prepare us not for a utopian society in this world, but for eternal life. That's what the gospel is, is, is here to achieve, to prepare us for the next life. Now, it affects this life. It changes us so that we become more kind and more generous and more thoughtful. But its primary objective is to prepare us for the next. And then one other observation I'll make is that it seems to me that people appear to think, maybe more and more so these days, that if we could just elect the right people, and if we could just persuade them to enact the right policies, well, then we could establish in this, maybe this country, the kingdom of God, or or at least something very much like it. It seems to me that we've become more and more political in our thinking. Now, maybe that's just me. Maybe it's just me growing older, and I was just unaware of it as a child. But it just seems like everything is politicized today, doesn't it? And I think there are reasons for that. And there, the, the, the rise of political talk radio. Or you can listen to political talk radio all day long, every day, you know. And, and, and the rise of the 24-hour news channel. We've got to fill the, the time with something, right? So what do they do? Well, you know, the cheapest thing to do is get a panel and get about four people on the panel and let them argue about politics over each other. Just do that all day. And then it says nothing about the internet, you know. And every website on the internet, it's just politics, 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 politics. And before long, we begin to think, you know, if we could just get the right political structure set up, we could just about have the kingdom of God on this earth, in, in, in this nation. Now, you see, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not of this world. It's just not of this world. It's not a political organization. We can't bring it about through political processes. It's just not of this world. 
And it's easy for us to get, kind of get caught up in that, get caught up in that cycle. And before you know it, we begin to think more and more, more of our attention, more of our interest, more of our effort, more of our concern, all being focused on and directed to a kingdom of this world. You see, we're not of this world. We're in the world, and we're not unconcerned about the state of the world, of course. We live in it, our children live in it, our grandchildren live in it. But see, our focus is not on this world. It's on another world. It's on the spiritual world. And there's no way that you can make a spiritual world through human politics. It, it just cannot be done. You know, I got to thinking about this some, some and I thought, well, that's, that's a comforting thought, isn't it? To realize that, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. You know why that's a comforting thought to me? Because <laughs> you see, as I see the world around me, and it's falling apart all where I look, I'm reminded my citizenship is not here. You see, my citizenship is in heaven. And it may fall apart all around me. That is, this world may, may, may fall apart, all, and no doubt that it will. <laughs> you know, That's okay. It's not that I'm unconcerned about that, but it's okay. Or see, my citizenship is somewhere else. It's in heaven. I'm part of a kingdom that is not of this world. Oh, it's in the world in some ways, but it's not of this world. And that's not where my focus and my attention is. So the message today is just a word of reminder. Jesus is the king. He's been raised to God's right hand, and he rules. But his kingdom is not of this world. And so may we focus our attention on being a citizen of His kingdom, building up His kingdom, bringing each others into His kingdom. Let's not be distracted from that by all the things that are going on around us. It's easy to do that, easy to be distracted from that. Let's not be distracted from that. Let's focus our attention and focus our efforts on building up the kingdom of God. I thought sometimes if we were as interested in building up the kingdom of God as we are the political machinations of this world, well, what could we accomplish? Just remember, we're citizens. Our citizenship is in heaven. And Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we can be citizens in your kingdom, subjects of your Son, our King, and our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Our Father, we pray that we will live as faithful citizens in this kingdom, that we will submit to His rule and to His authority as we go through life. We pray, Father, that our efforts will be toward building up His kingdom, strengthening it, strengthening it, uh, promoting it, building it up. And our efforts will be toward bringing other people who are outside this kingdom into the kingdom so that they might enjoy all the privileges, all the blessings that come to faithful citizens in your kingdom. We're so thankful, Father, that you love us and that you care for us, that you love us enough to send your Son into this world to make 
this possible. We're thankful for that. Help us, Father, always to be focused on these spiritual things so that as we pass from this physical material world into the next, that we will simply cross over into the eternal glorious kingdom in your presence forever and ever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not a member of the kingdom of God, disciple of Jesus,